<laughs> I'm not kidding. Well, let's just dive in. We've got a lot of um, ground to cover here, and I'll and I'll be you know I'll be straightforward on this workshop. Uh, it really kind of grew out of um, my work. Um, you know, currently I'm, uh, I advise about 50 companies around the U.S. and Canada and U.K. on their leadership issues. And one of the huge, the biggest strategic issues of the uh, the days ahead is the whole issue of talent, talent in organizations, how to get them, how to how to keep the talent. And so, in a sense, uh, this this. What I'm giving you really is um, a workshop that I do with professionals that I, I feel like have kind of they've grown stagnant, <laughs> you know, in their careers, and uh, you know the the cars coming up behind them are getting ready to pass them, and they're seeing those headlights. So I think it's interesting because I, I think what I'd like to do is just kind of share with you the perspective as you all are preparing to enter into the work world. And to give you a, a flavor and a sense of really what's going on and what organizations are feeling. And this doesn't mean just business organizations that, you know, if you're going into healthcare or any, you know, even nonprofits, any organization that's out there today is really wrestling with the idea of talent. And they're not getting bigger and bigger. You know, what they're trying to do is get smaller and tighter and more productive. And that just puts more uh, pressure on. Two generations before you, the Gen Xers were kind of in the enviable spot where their generation was like 30% smaller than the boomer generation, which was moving into retirement. And so what was happening is that since there were far fewer of them, they could almost cherry pick opportunities. And, and, and a lot of companies just flat went out of business because they couldn't field players. And, 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 and talented people could go anywhere. You know, they had their pick pick. But yeah, I think that you all are facing what, you know, the generation immediately in front of you and you all are inheriting is uh, probably for the next, I would say, six to seven years, an economy that's going to be really continuing to decline until the demographics of our country shifts. And what there's going to be is more people coming into the workforce uh, at a time when companies are trying to trim back because they're just, they're just, the, the, there's not the economic engine you know, to provide jobs and continued growth. And so <clears throat> as a result of that, I thought, you know, if anybody needs it, and so I, I'm excited about sharing this because even though I share it broadly across all kinds of audiences, if anybody needs to be in these organizations, not only for your own welfare, but also just for the impact that you can have on the organizations that you enter into, I think that we need to rethink what it means to be in the real world and, and to be a professional, and I, and it, 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 regardless of what profession that you're in. And that's why I call it professionalism in the new normal. So I'm going to go pretty quickly here. And, and like I said, um, you know, most of this is pretty much straight up practical advice in terms of how you might need to rethink how you're thinking about your career and your launch into the professional world. How many of you are going to be graduating in the next year? Okay. How many of you have interned or worked for companies already? You know, that sort of thing. That's good. Some of them like that. Okay. Uh, how many of you have come out of families that have uh, owned their own businesses? 
Okay, so some of you can, can see it from the inside in. Those are, those are good perspectives to have. Let me just jump in here, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of start with kind of a little bit more of the macro situation that you see in the workforce today, and then kind of get into what I feel like are seven imperatives that you need to begin to develop as life skills in order to continue to be productive, effective, valuable uh, in your work. And I think because I think in so doing, you can embed yourself in this. A lot of these things are things that I've worked out over the years. And, you know, where I am today is, is, is a total surprise. I, you know, I was telling Neil, you know, if, if you were to, sometimes I'm in front of, like next week I'll be talking at NYU on innovation. And I, and I know I'll be standing up there before the audience and think, what in the world am I doing here? You know, how did this kid, you know, fresh off the boat from Japan, you know, who spent all this time loving Jesus and ministering to people, be talking? And God just, God does things like that. But I think some of the things that I'm going to share with you are just things that I've done to, in terms of personal, personal, professional preparation alongside the spiritual preparation. What, obviously, you know, I mean, I just look around the room here. And you're a reflection of the fact that we're, we're living in an increasingly global world. And that the competition and, and the forces that are affecting your job market, your economy, come from all over the world now for the first time in, 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 in generations. But I think one of the things, and you all may feel this more, but I know that when I talk with people of an older generation, they'll say, hey, we've been through tough times before. We're going to get through this. Everything is a cycle. Everything is going to come back around. And you'll see the good times will come back again. And my own view is that, no, it's not cycles. But what's happened is that we're now in a time of permanent seismic change. That the global economic structures, the, you know, the, national the international global political makeup, uh, where innovation is going, where, say, education is going, all of these things have changed. Um, how many of you are here in, in terms of engineering? In, 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 you're, you're engineering, right? Any other engineers in here? Yeah, you think about this, that engineering is a critical field in any economy because one of the things it does is that it's engineers that convert ideas into practical results, in my mind, and broadly speaking. The United States last, in the last years has graduated on the average about 75,000 engineering students a year. China has been graduating over a quarter million engineering students a year. India and China has been graduating over 350,000 engineering students a year. And so if you think that one of the drivers of an economy is this, is this group of people who have this ability, and the U.S. You know, is like one-fifth of one, one nation, you know, and, and a third of another nation, what is, you know, what is going to happen really to the, the ability of this nation and this economy to continue to lead without that kind of intellectual property and creative, you know, energy going on in the country? And these are all permanent seismic shifts. I think the size of our economy, the jobs, what it can produce, where innovation is coming from, all of these sorts of things is, is different. And I think any of you that have been born abroad or traveled abroad, you know, uh, know that I think most of the people have never left the borders of this country do not understand the dynamism and the power of what's happening in other parts of the world. And so I call it a VUCA world. VUCA is a term I used, I think, a few years back, but it's uh, when I was speaking with you all. And I'll just kind of hit it really quickly here. But it's a term that I, uh, that I had two interns 
um, around 2001, 2002, and they were both they were both um, young lieutenants, you know, captains at that time, that had just returned from Afghanistan, kind of in the first waves after 9/11. And uh, one of the things that they said, they said, "This this is war. This situation, this conflict is unlike anything that we've ever done before." Up to that period in time, the Pentagon itself had something like 350 full-time guys that did nothing but scenario war games. And so that they, could be, they would have a notebook, let's say, to say, okay, if that war occurs, this is how we fight it. And, and nothing that they had done to prepare had, had envisioned what was happening in Afghanistan because of the nature of asymmetrical warfare where you have these tribesmen in remote areas that are using the web and other tools like this to, you know, to daily change their tactics in response to what was happening with the U.S. forces. And one of, the, one of the finest pictures I had was of this young lieutenant who couldn't have been much more than 24 years old, 25 years old, in native garb, going across the Afghan landscape on a horse with all of these other tribesmen here off to engage the enemy. And if you were to ask at that point in time, who was setting U.S. military strategic policy in the world at that time? It was not some four-star guy back at the Pentagon. It was this young lieutenant who was responding on the spot to what was going on in the world and, and was adjusting U.S. military tactics accordingly. And, 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 and Nate and Tony, uh, these two uh, captains, were in charge then of revamping all of West Point's leadership training and all of the U.S. Army's um, platoon leader training so that they would begin to get real-time feedback from the battlefront and, and immediately change training back in the U.S. A Black Hawk goes down, there's an after-action report, they would get it, and all of a sudden all the training would be adjusted just like that. That had never occurred. And so, you know, you all are kind of in this situation where there's this unbelievable VUCA going on, and what Tony and, Tony and, and Nate said is that it's a VUCA world. We're experiencing unbelievable volatility today. You know, you think about how fast the stock market goes up and goes down in a day. You know, just based upon some sneeze somewhere, you know, on a political front. And you look at how industries can come and go. <clears throat> I think I saw up there somebody had a flip video camera up there. I think there's one taped, you know, it's like a flip. And there's these guys, the guys that started this thing, you know, started this, and, and you all may know the details better. But after kind of working, moonlighting, they engineered this thing and developed this flip video camera. And then within like six weeks after they launched this thing, they had sold like a quarter billion dollars worth of these things. And, and really two years later, they were purchased by Cisco. And two years after that, Cisco totally shut them down. So in four years, they went from nothing to a major buyout by Cisco to being and having the company totally shut down because it had been replaced by everybody having a camera on their phone. That's volatility, isn't it? That fast. And, and, and what's going to happen is that in your professional world, what's going to happen is that you're going to see everybody, the organizations and your peers, responding to the volatility. And what people tend to do when it's volatile is that it goes this way, and they see it going, and so they start going that way, only to kind of get there 
just as it's going back that way, you know? And, and so that's why people always kind of get into the market just as it goes down. You know, they get out of the market just as it goes up, and you're constantly chasing. And you can do that with your career. And I think, fortunately for us, you know, we've got the Lord as a guide to kind of keep us from kind of being racked by the volatility. But we've got to be thinking about what's going on in our professions, the fields, the work around them, and begin to kind of understand how, the, how volatility is impacting the things that we're studying and preparing ourselves to do. I think that my understanding is that if you're in a technical field, that you start as a freshman, that by the time you're a freshman or a sophomore or junior, a lot of the knowledge that you've just gained is already obsolete. It's also an uncertain world. We don't know <clears throat> what's going to happen. The thing is, there are a lot of pundits and a lot of people and a lot of industries built on being absolutely certain about what you're going to do, you know? Everybody is saying, you know, you really need to buy gold. <laughs> you know, you really need to get into this investment. You really need to go into this field. And they are absolutely certain about it. And I think that the main thing is that how do you prepare yourself to go into a world where the fundamental trends that we've always been able to look back on and project forward in aren't valid anymore? And so how do you live with great uncertainty? Again, you know, for us as believers... We have, we have a rock in that, but I think on a professional level, there's things that we are not going to know. The other part of it is it's very unbelievably complex. Our world is highly integrated, interconnected. You, you know, the, the, in the systems thinking world, they say, you know, the, the phrase is that, that a butterfly flaps its wings in Malaysia and you have tornadoes in Oklahoma because of the chain of events that it sets off. And, and a lot of times the things that are affecting us affecting us are two and three orders removed from the things that are on the news or that are on our radar. And the things that you do sometimes you don't understand, the downstream uh, effects of what's going to happen. So you're living in an unbelievably complex world, and it's ambiguous. I think I work with a lot of guys that are in engineering and construction, and they, are, they like their problem solvers. And so they like to be able to say, here's the answer, you know? We can define it, we can solve it. But we live in a world where the challenges are so big now that it's not either or. What you have to do is that you have to kind of live with the tension of dilemmas. And so if you're the kind of person that really wants a world that's really nice and tidy and easily described, and you want a job in an organization and a career path that's that way, that's not happening anymore that there's always going to be a little bit of this ambiguity. So the question then is, if you're entering into this VUCA world, obviously we have a security in Christ. Obviously we know our future is in Christ. But at a professional level, you know, in terms of your work world, who knows? And this is the way we feel, <laughs> you know? And when we say, what's God's plan for my life? And what's, what, what career should I choose? What you know, what profession should I choose? You know, what should I study after? That's how it feels, doesn't it? And then everybody's, everybody's going this to you, right? So what I'd like to do is at least say, okay, when you're in a, when you're in a situation when those external things can't be predicted, then the, what you have to do is that you have to prepare yourself to be adaptive, to be resilient, Right? And to learn how to kind of create value in, in that environment, to see, see what's going on. 
And, and, and so these are some of the things that I'll talk about. So one of the things that has changed, though, as a result of the world is the nature of work. The concept of the job is actually uh, something that's, that grew out of fairly recent history. The word job meant um, literally in the Old English like, um, uh, I guess, like a chunk. And, what, and, and um, what happened was that in the Industrial Revolution, you know, Henry Ford being kind of the, uh, the personification of it in the assembly line, where things that were used to be done by artisans and craftsmen that had kind of end-to-end control over things was broken down into the assembly line. And those chunks were called jobs. And so the whole idea that, you know, we're going to go out from here to get a job you know, is increasingly becoming obsolete. Uh, you know, there are jobs, you know, that, you know, that I think, you know, probably my parents, you know, were in a situation where they could get a job and work in an organization and put in their 35 years, you know, and get their retirement. And, and, and but that's not, that's not the case anymore. The average person is probably going to now have six to eight different career changes. So even as you're saying, I'm preparing myself for this career, <laughs> you know, maybe the first one, <laughs> you know. And so this, it's, a, it's a fast moving thing. So I'm just saying jobs are obsolete. And so I, what I would like to do is disabuse you of the idea that I'm going to go to get a job and then I'm, I'm set. I'm just saying that, that the job is the least secure thing that you can be thinking about. You have to think beyond that. 65% of you will work in jobs that don't exist today in the near future. <laughs> so even think, think how education can't even keep up with that, right? So <clears throat> the other part of it, too, is that especially, and I see this with a lot of people, but I see, I see it a lot with Christian um, employees and people that are coming in. They say, but, you know, but really, I have great character. I'm a hard worker. You know, I'm a good person. I have values. You can trust me. I play well with others. You know, all of this sort of thing. You know, I can, you can, I can execute and everything else like that. And there was a time when that sort of value, that sort of basic uh, character was foundational. Obviously, nobody's going to hire if you don't have that. But, that. but, you know, the expectation today is that it doesn't make any difference what value, what your background is spiritually, that that just accepted, you know, that you need to be a person of character and integrity and willing to work hard and, you know, work on a team and these sorts of things. So you've got to go beyond that. And we can't settle on that. I think a lot of times I hear um, young Christians that are first in the marketplace and I can't believe, you know, they're, you know, they're taking this other person because I, I've got character and things like that. And I'm saying, well, yeah, but I think most organizations feel like that's just kind of the, the price of admission to the dance. If you don't have that, you don't even come. But if you're there, it's kind of like, okay, what else beyond that? So the question is, what do you do apart from character and hard work to set yourself apart? So these are the seven imperatives that um, I'll suggest with you. And like I said, we're going to fly through here. Um, usually we take a little bit more time on this, but I think, I think you guys are fast. So, you know, Oh, you're speed learners, right? Um, 
you, you know, you're, you're, from, you're from SC and Chico, so you guys are the cream, cream of the crop, right? Not quite as fast as University of Texas students, but. <laughs> Neil, I was just saying that the last time we met, Neil, the last time we met, USC and University of Texas were at really different points in their glory, weren't they? <laughs> we, we should console each other a little bit more now. <laughs> so here's the first one. I think even now you need to begin to broaden your awareness and your view of the world. Uh, you know, you all are the most diverse generation and probably have a bigger picture sense of that. How many of you have traveled abroad or, or you know, have come from abroad? And that's good. You know, but what I would say is that not, it's not just travel, but I think it's just your own education. Because I think one of the things about our educational systems is that you're specializing, specializing, specializing right now. And you're thinking, man, all my bandwidth is used up just kind of keeping on top of that. But it's important for you to continue to be curious and think more broadly about the world. Read more broadly. Expose yourself to what's going on in the world. Travel. How many of you have studied abroad? Okay. Uh, how many of you have kind of done missions work or, you know, done that? I think anything you can do like that is important. I know that my two oldest kids probably spent at least a year and a half to two of their four years studying abroad learning another language, studying in other areas. And I think, and, I, and, and you know, they, they wanted to do that, but at the same time I thought, you know, in today's world, you've got to kind of take advantage of that and, and continue to broaden your horizons. And I just find that a lot of the clients that I work with, they are still very parochial in terms of their view of the world, very industry specific, and they don't see the broader outline of things that are on the fringes of the radar that are coming in to hit them because they don't, they don't think about those things. And I think one of the things that that'll do is that it'll allow you to see opportunities. You know, I started my first business when I was a junior in college. I kind of got bored with school. <laughs> and, uh, but having come from Japan to the US, and it was just that time in the US economy, I saw things that were going on in Asia in terms of the economy that the U.S. wasn't seeing. And as a result, it allowed me to step in and began to, and, and started a marketing company rep, helping represent U.S. companies into the Far East at a time when there wasn't a lot of thinking about the global marketplace. For you all, you don't know anything different than the fact that the world is, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's a global thing. It was a novel thing in my days, but the breadth helped me to see opportunities. And I think you've got to continue to be looking at not only your life, your nation, but your profession. I was, uh, <clears throat> I was working with a group of uh, um, uh, accountants, really, really exciting group of people. <laughs> but they were the largest private, he privately held public ac ac uh, accounting company outside of the big three or four, however many is left now, you know. And I asked them, I asked them, what is your biggest threat? And, they, and, and as we were talking about it, they said, you know, they said, you know, really, the bread and butter of our work is tax. And he says, what's happening is that all of the tax preparation is moving offshore to India. Because he said, they've got the MBAs, and basically tax work is tax work, and they can do it less expensively. 
And he said, all of, our, all, all of the bread and butter of our business is moving to India, where people are, now that's happening. And so that's not only an opportunity when you can look at the world that way and look at how your profession that you're entering into could be threatened, but also it warns you of the risks and dangers. So when you think about your profession, you know, you have to think about it not just in terms of what's happening here, but how could your profession be impacted by things that are happening somewhere else in the world? Does that make sense? And in the center of, like, say, the design world, and a lot of the engineering is, is not in the United States anymore, is it? You know, you're going to be looking to China or Korea or India, you know, uh, and, and even some of the, um, the South American companies. So, you know, I think uh, just these are questions. These are, uh, you know, we won't have time to discuss them, but, you know, I think about what resources you, know, you need to use to be informed. And, and think, think about your own, comp, your, the organization that you're going to work for. If you're going to be interviewing with somebody, you know, it might do you some good to be thinking about their competitive position, where they could be threatened, and your profession in general. Uh, in terms of resources, for me, uh, I'm pretty aggressive in that regard. Um, I know that, you know, my own um, feeds, you know, in terms of reader, I keep, I keep tabs on probably about 120 to 150 different sources, professionally, news-wise, different, different areas, just so that I can kind of stay kind of washed in, in, in what's going on. And, and, and so expand, you know, you've got the tools today to be able to kind of develop breadth. The second, the second thing then is that once you begin to understand, okay, uh, that I need to broaden my world, is that you need to think of yourself in terms of what I call me ink. Now, this may sound exceedingly selfish, and I'm not, it's, it's not meant to be, but it's, it is meant to say this, that we live in a world where you, and you've probably seen it maybe with your parents, you can't step out into this world economically and think somebody's going to take care of me. That if I show up and I'm a good person and I have some skills, I'm going to get that job and, and, and I'm good to go. It's, it's, you know, as these companies change, the harsh reality is, is that they change organizations, their structures, the way they operate. And, and so a couple of things that I, one of the things that I have to, tell people, I try to, I'm trying to bake it into people's thinking, is that everyone is a PSF. It's something that Tom Peters coined some years ago. And the idea is that everyone is a professional service firm. When I, when I took over at Glenary, it, 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 honest, it, honestly, financially, it was in real bad shape. And the, the, the whole organizational was pretty dysfunctional in terms of its ability to initiate, make decisions, deliver services. And the board of directors at that time said, frankly, you know, the problem is all the people here and our recommendation when you take over is that you clean house and start with a whole new lot of people. And, and, and you know, it, it was tempting to think about, but I didn't think that that was the problem. But one of the things that I thought was that people did not own their responsibilities. They did not kind of bring energy and accountability to what they did. And so there was always... It's somebody else's fault. It's not my job. All of these sorts of things going on. 
And you know, you guys go into you guys go into a store, a restaurant, interact with a company. When you're hit with that kind of an attitude by somebody, how does that make you feel? You don't like it either, do you? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and so, um, <clears throat> so I said, look, I said you've you've got to change your mind. You, some of you, have been working here 20, 25 years. But I said the attitude that you have to have is that if none of you are on the payroll. None of you were getting a check from me, but that every one of you had negotiated an individual service contract to do what you're going to do. Now, I'm your, now I'm your customer, and you're, you're the contractor. You're the supplier. Now, how does that change my, your relationship with me when you realize that you're under contract to deliver what you've promised to me, and that contract lasts this year with the possibility of extension? How would that change your attitude toward me? What do you think? Yeah? Uh, they'd value their jobs more. You'd value your job more? What else? How would it change your thinking? You want to make sure you showed up with the goods so you can get it up on the contract. Right. You gotta, you gotta, you're making sure you deliver, right? Okay, what else? Probably even make me competitive. Like, I want to be better than the next person. Okay, you bet. Because you know you could be replaced, right? What else? Right, right. I mean, those of you that have come out of family businesses, how important is the customer to that family business? To really know the customer, to really understand them, to have the relationship with them, to understand what their goals are, what they need, and how to serve them, right? And that's the attitude, I think, that we have to bring to the work. We can't just say, you know, I'm kind of clocking my time. Or I'm just doing what I've been asked to do. Or this is just my job description. You have to bring that something more which says, hey, it's like I, I have a contract with you. And, and, you know, I, and I'm here to deliver unbelievable value to you. So what do you need? How do you need it? What are your goals? What are you trying to achieve? And how do I serve you? Now, when you think about the essence of that attitude, isn't that very biblical? How do I serve you? <laughs> You know, how do I lift you up? You know, how do I help you become successful? And so even as you're thinking about your profession and learning kind of the, you know, the fundamentals of engineering or, you know, biology or medicine or business or whatever it is you're doing, I think that you have to kind of go beyond just kind of the technical part of this of what you're doing and begin to say, how do I position myself really as kind of a value creator. You following me here? Okay. So let's go a little bit beyond that. So one is you got to learn how to create value and improve your company every day. Now, where could you practice doing that right now? Where could you practice that, that attitude right now? What's that? Yeah, you got your own ministries here, right? I mean, you could just kind of show up at formations and say, hey, I'm faithful. I was there on time. You know, I check it off. But, you know, to kind of take ownership of the thing that you're involved in, or if you've got a part-time job, or you're interning, or any place like that, you kind of begin to kind of act as if you're a professional service firm. And you're thinking, let me step back out of my job and look at everything that this outfit is trying to do and think, what can I do to help create value that's not there today? You know? And improve how they operate today. 
Now, do you think that's valuable to an organization? I don't care what organization it is, right? So and a second part of that is beyond the, the, the personal <coughs> service firm is that I think it's also kind of the project life. I know that's really true in the high-tech area. You know, I, I had an internet media startup company, and I also, you know, kind of consulted with tech firms. And one of the things that's interesting is the way they read resumes is really different. You know, the old, the old resumes were kind of like, uh, oh, you know, you were there for 10 years. That means you're a loyal, stable person, you know, that we can count on you and everything. And I think, I think a lot of the new firms are looking at that and saying, you didn't do anything interesting. <laughs> you know, what have you learned lately? <laughs> you know, and, 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 and a, lot of, a lot of, because jobs are obsolete, it's not so much that you have a job in a position, so much as that you're assigned to teams to work on projects. And so it's more like the film industry in the sense that something starts, stops, and then you've got to find your next gig, you know? And, and so I think that one of the things that you can do to help yourself is learn project skills, get involved with your, you know, your cohorts in, in terms of school projects or internship projects or ministry projects, and demonstrate that you have not only the skills to kind of work on a project team and accomplish something, but you know, if, you can, if you can even design a project that's kind of cool, different, unusual, interesting, and be involved in that, that's a plus on your, you know, on your side too. Because it, it shows that you, this ability to kind of have creative independent thought and that you can kind of start with nothing and get something done. You're not kind of a cubicle dweller that's just saying, what should I do next, boss? But you can look around and say, that needs to be done. We can get it done. That needs to be done. Let's get it done. Completely apart from a job. Does that make sense, guys? You follow me? So you are your projects, and so that in terms of your resumes, as you're interviewing, I think one of the things that you want to highlight is not just your educational pieces, you know, the classes and stuff that you've, you know, got the credentials for, but the cool stuff that you've done, that you've actually accomplished, and what that says about you in terms of your leadership ability, your management ability, your innovation, your creative thought, you know, ability to work on a team, all of these sorts of things. And I think that what will happen is that, again, I, I'm not talking about this in a selfish sense. And, and this, is, this is marketplace language. But it is about your reputation and who you are. What are you known for? And, and you know, I think that that was, that was kind of what happened to me was that I just became known as a person who could help leaders. And I, and, I, and I just kind of ended up on project after project. And after a while, that in, in kind of the circles that I'm in, when they think about leadership or innovation or strategy, you know, that just, that just kind of, that's a part of the personal branding. And, um, and so I think that what happens is that you're going to have to think about it right now. You know, your brand is kind of low on the horizon, right? But I think, again, I think as you do these other things and you, you stack up projects, you know, and interesting experiences and, and demonstrate abilities um, that you're, you, you're going to have a brand not only for your character and the qualities of your life, but also for, for who you are and what you can do. So, you know, I asked the questions, you know, how would your approach to work change if you were me, Inc.? What is your brand? We've talked about that a little bit, but these are things to be thinking about more. 
A third thing is that I think it's important to learn the big picture. The big picture of your company or your organization. You know, when you think about a company, I think a lot of times people will go in, and, and, and I do feel like you all are better, and in, 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 in I talk about you all in, in terms of your generation, because of the resources that you use you know, to get information. But I think still, a lot of times, we don't understand really the bigger picture of what our own organizations will do. So I'll go in a lot of times, and I'll, I'll talk to people, employees in a company, and I say, what's the purpose of your business? You know, beyond making money, you know, but what's the purpose of your business? They don't know, you know? You know, what's the difference that you're, you're making? You know, what's your strategy? I'll say, well, how, do, how does your business work? I don't know. This, this is my job over here. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so one of the important things for you to do is really step back. And as you're thinking about the organizations that you're going into, is, is take some time to try to understand the big picture of the company or the organization that you're going into. To think about what are their challenges and stresses? What's their strategy for moving ahead? You know? Where are they trying to grow? What are they trying to develop? What's the difference? What's the impact that they're trying to make? And, and all of those things help you then understand how your piece fits into it so that when you do your thing, you know you're moving the dial on, on their bigger picture thing. And I can tell you that organizations really appreciate people that get the connection between the two. Because they're desperate to find people who at every level can think about that. Think about it this way, how organizations have changed. What is this? What shape is that? Triangle. Triangle pyramid, right? Triangle pyramid. OK. You get an A. <laughs> but think about this, is that in, in, the, in, 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 the, in the old ages, and you, were, you, come, in, you come into uh, an organization. And let me just use an illustration of, of um, um, yeah, uh, uh, an older organization. And, and, and when you think about an organization, what does that represent? What kind of, what's that? Hierarchy. Hierarchy, right? And in the old days, it was kind of like, okay, who knew the most about the business? Who's the guy at that top, right? Who knew how, how all the money worked and all of that? It was all of that, right? Who wrote the checks? That was probably his wife. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, who knew the latest in the industry and the trends and the technology? All of that sort of thing. You know, who had the best relationships with all the clients and everything? It's that guy. Okay. Fast forward to today. Who knows more about the bleeding edge of technology? Down here, right? Right? Who has the most customer inter interaction interface on a daily basis? Right? Who's probably more in touch with kind of the shifts and changes and trends and what's going on in the world? Okay, And so what's happening is that enlightened organizations are really figuring this out. And so what they're doing is kind of like Tony and Nate were trying to do, where the sh leadership was shifting more and more to the front lines, which means that as you're coming into work, you just can't be a soldier. You just can't be an employee. You've got to be a person who understands what's going on. Now, that may seem daunting, but I would just say, you know, it just kind of simply take a look at the company. Read what they're doing, you know. 
read about what they're trying to accomplish, what challenges them, and, and begin to get a sense of you know, how even a first-timer in the company can make a difference. Um, so that's kind of learning the big, so you, that's, that's just what I call just developing a strategic mindset and understanding the business model. And, uh, you know, a lot of this will be more clear if you were in the business, but, um, and, you know, so I think, what, you know, I think that the main thing that I'm saying here is that you've got to understand, even today, even as you're getting, anticipating kind of maybe coming into your first job, is really working hard at understanding how what you do really advances the big picture. You know, what's, what's the big picture of this ministry? What's the big picture of the church that you belong to? You know, what's the big picture of, of, of the, the place where you work part-time or intern? That really helps, doesn't it? Now, I, you know, I'll say that you're going to get leaders sometimes in organizations and people in front that are not so enlightened and just say, look, kid, you know, just go make the copies, you know. But, uh, but I think at the same time, though, I would say that don't let that stop you. Don't let that stop you. All right? Are you following me? Any questions? Are you hot? You need to stand, take a break? All right. We're doing okay? I know. I hate this late afternoon classes. <laughs> this, this one hopefully doesn't disappoint you because you're kind of getting to the end and you're thinking, at last, free at last. <laughs> but it's never stop learning. Gandhi said, live as if you were to die tomorrow. Learn as if you were to live forever. Um, you know, I just, I just did a, a two-day um, executive seminar, two full days, with a company, about 100 company presidents on just the leader as a lifelong learner. Because what's happened is that, the, you know, a lot of people get to a certain point by their mid to late 30s, early 40s, and, and they're just plateaued. You know, they're just in a rut, and they're just kind of going on past experience. You all have, are living in a time of unprecedented change. You know, what do you think is the use-by date for knowledge and experience? It's not very long, is it? You know? And the thing is, we've got to keep, keep pushing on this. You know, otherwise you get into a rut. And all a rut is is a grave without ends. What is the term that we are called in the scriptures as followers of Christ? Disciple. And what does the term, term disciple mean? Student, a learner, right? And so I think that this should not be strange to you because it's not just about learning and growing deeply, but I think learning in terms of your whole life. And um, again, like I said, this is something that we could talk about for two days, but I think that the main thing here is I want you to, I want you to just not only just kind of look at the end of, of your education as kind of the end of your learning, but just as the beginning. So, you know, I think a couple things is you're, right now you're working at developing professionally. That'll probably take you the next 10 years or so. Generally speaking, it takes about 10 years to achieve mastery of a, a, of a given skill 
or of a given uh, capability. And, and that's very disciplined in terms of learning. The second thing is, I would say, work to develop your gifts and abilities. I think beyond your own gifts and abilities that you think about in terms of maybe spiritual terms, I think one, you know, one of the things that I do is that we work with assessing leaders and saying, helping them identify exactly what it is that they do well. Their ability to solve problems or synthesize issues or, or read people, you know, or to visualize things in three dimensions or whatever it is, you know, or to communicate is that I think that as you try different things in your, your, your education and in different roles here in the ministry, you're going to learn that you have other gifts and abilities, you know. And, and what you want to do is begin to work on your gifts and abilities and not just become competent in them. Every company wants you to be at least competent, <laughs> you know. But there's a difference between being competent, being good, and achieving mastery of an area. And, and today, again, because it's a global world, you're competing on a global scale against world-class talent. And so you've got to keep learning. You've got to keep developing. And, and, and the, the area here, as I would say, is focus on your strength. Again, I think, I think you know, um, the scriptures would tell us that too, Right? But why, why focus on your strengths rather than your weaknesses? Yes. Contributes to the idea of mastery. So okay, excellent. Excellent. Being proficient and even your weaknesses being completely strong. Right. That's right. It's interesting. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say you might develop them a lot faster than you'd be able to develop things you aren't just good at. That's right. Yeah, I think one of the things that you'll see that, that the United States spends almost $100 billion a year in training and personal development in the corporate world. The research shows that probably 87% or so of that investment is wasted. <laughs> and part of it is that it's because most of it's remedial. Somebody can't do something good, so they send them to training, try to coach them up a little bit, you know, to get better. But the research also shows that the more you focus on your weaknesses, generally, the weaker you get. <laughs> you know, there's a certain level of basic minimum competencies that you have. But, you know, if you're a turtle, you'll never fly, no matter how hard you flap. <laughs> and, and, the, and the beauty of this, though, is that from a, from a believer's perspective and good leadership perspective, if you know your strengths, you stay in your sweet spot, and you surround yourself and you collaborate with those that complement your weaknesses. The hard part of a lot of you guys is that probably in this area, you're in your specialty because you are what we call in, in, in our vernacular in terms of assessments, specialists. You're people that get a sense of personal satisfaction out of, of being kind of the best. You're the fastest problem solver. You know what to do. And it makes you nervous if anybody else is doing it because you know you can do it better and faster. The problem with that, though, is that you can't scale yourself. And after a while, you actually become get in the way. Because as you progress, you have to learn to let go of things and trust other people, you know, develop other people and keep growing in your strengths. And right now you're working on this area, but it's going to get tougher and tougher. 
So you want to focus on your strengths. And then the other part of it is mastery, as we've been talking about, and breadth. And by breadth, I mean right now, <clears throat> you're pretty focused in terms of your area. This is a, something that I learned from Peter Drucker some years ago. And probably since my mid-20s, what I've done in order to, because I'm a specialist, and I knew I could get too narrow with my life. So what I've done for, gosh, all these years now, I can't even add up the years. That's, that's really bad when you need a calculator to figure out how old you are. Uh, you know, is that, is that every three years I've, I've taken a topic and I've created a three-year learning pro project on that topic. And I'll read and study and get basically a level of, of mastery around that topic in three years. And then move to another topic. And so what that's done over the years that I've studied things like, you know, cross-cultural communication, but marketing and advertising, to strategy, to innovation, to, you know, the scriptural roots of commerce, you know, all different sort of things like this. And all of these things are kind of converging at this point in time in terms of my own career. And so for your own longer-term impact and flexibility, because again, we were saying it's the VUCA world, you need to be adaptive. You need to be able to figure out how to create value. You can't become obsolete. Even as you're mastering your area right now, you have to begin to say, I'm going to have a lifetime discipline to create depth, a breadth. So there are just some things. We want to turn your strengths into towering strengths. The, the fifth thing is I think you all have a head start on this because of the way you all are interacting. But you need to continue to build your network inside and outside the organizations that you're in. And Jeremy, I'll, what I'll do is I'll send a file of this so that you can distribute that to everybody of this presentation. So, um, you know, and I think, and I, but I think in terms of just networking, I mean, way beyond social media, Facebook, and things like this, I'm thinking you need you need four different types of collaborators in your in your network, um, people in your network. One is collaborators. These are people that if you've got something, you know, and, and you start to find them in an organization when you come in really quick, and you've got something that needs to happen that's outside of the job description and things going on, you'll find that there are some people that you could team up with really quickly to really crush this issue, you know, and to really come up with it. You all work collaboratively, don't you, quite a bit? With peers in terms of homework and other projects and things like that. But that's, that is a skill set that needs to be done. It's going to be used more and more. So, it, you know, kind of be looking for that and be a good collaborator yourself. A second one is that you need mentors. I think it's not just spiritually, which you're already getting the handle of that, but you need to begin to positively identify and go after different mentors, professionally or in different areas of your life. And it's always going to be on you. I mean, you'll be blessed if somebody comes up and said, hey, I'd like to kind of mentor you. And some organizations are proactive about that, but they're rare. So your ability to kind of look around and say, I'd really like to learn from that person. And to not fear just kind of going and taking the initiative to say, can I, can I just pick your brains? You know, can I learn from you? Uh, and I think most leaders, if you're approached like that by a young person are more than delighted. I think a thir third area is thought leaders. What I mean by that is that you need to be thinking about networking with people who really are in the fields that you're interested in, the ones that are driving the thinking and the advancement of that arena, that domain. 
and to begin to make those connections. Because, you know, one of the things that when I do is that when I read a book is that one of the first things I do is I I don't just dive in. Generally, the place that I spend the most time on at the beginning of a book is in the bibliography and in the notes section. Because Because what it tells me is who is this author building this thinking off of? You know, whose shoulders is he standing on? And in any given field after a while, you find that there are just a handful of people that really are the true thought leaders of that domain. And everybody else is repackaging their stuff, <laughs> you know, in different ways. And so continue to be kind of, and, 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 and this, this doesn't mean that you necessarily have to know them personally. But, you know, if you know that there's three or four people that really are the thought leaders of your area that you're interested in, you could probably read everything that they've published, you know? Listen to their talks, you know? Download their lectures, whatever it might be. And then the last person is that you do need some crazies. And what I mean by that, these are the people that give you courage to go for it. In a world where everybody's saying it's, boy, that's a lot, that's really, that's big. <laughs> that's, that's risky, that's audacious. You gotta have some people saying, Sounds about right. Let's go do it. You know? And we all need people to put courage in our lives because everybody else is not, right? <clears throat> so we want that to go. The sixth thing here is, um, you guys doing okay? Doing all right? Any questions? Is, I think one is develop others. This is where you all actually have a huge head start over most of your peers. Just because you're developing in the area of how do we help others? How do we help others grow? I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And I know that I'm trying to do that now with an organization of 10,000 people is try to create this culture where everybody's helping others to develop. That, it's, that the development is not the result of some program or structure or somebody, but it's a whole community of 10,000 people helping the others grow, personally, professionally, in every other way. And here's, here's one of the things I keep telling people. I said, replacing yourself is job security. One thing I've noticed in organizations a lot of times is that this person that becomes the bottleneck of the organization, they hoard the information, or whatever it is that they do, because they feel like, if nobody else knows this stuff but me, then I can't get fired because I'm too valuable and too important to that organization. I have fired some of those people. <laughs> you know, as the rest of the organization gasped, thinking, how can we replace this person? And the organization functioned just fine, you know. But if you're trying to hold on to your job, you're going to lose it eventually. That the most valuable thing that you can do in an organization, I think, is develop others. Because now you're helping the organization grow gain greater capacity. And in today's world, doesn't every organization feel like it needs to have more capacity, more ability, better people? If you can do that, that's kind of like a skill of skills that goes beyond the thing that you're doing. So, you know, you'll also, you're always asking people, what are you holding on to in your work that someone else needs to do, <laughs> you know, to learn? And what can you do to accelerate the development of those around you? So even as you step into your first roles and you're there with other people, if you have a mindset of sharing, 
helping each other learn, sharing what you're learning, creating kind of a healthy environment of learning, that's a very, very valuable thing. And then the last part is what I would just call be leaderful. Chances are, when you come into your first role, you're not going to be the leader. <laughs> you know, you're going to be on somebody's team, right? They hired you. But that doesn't mean that you can't lead, that you can't influence. What is it about being salt and light and seed, if not the ability to influence? So one of the things that I want you to do as you go out is own your own influence, own your own saltiness, own the light in your life, own your own servant heart, you know? And, and, and understand that wherever you go, you are, you are making an impact. You are influencing others. With your attitude, your energy, your abilities, your ideas, your character, your heart. And that's important. And I think what happens is that you learn to lead without authority. I think there's a lot of people that can't lead without the resources and the authority and the position. But more and more in a project-based world, that doesn't happen. So what you have to do is you have to lead by the quality of your ideas, your interaction with people, your ability to bring people together, your ability to develop other people, and all of that can be done without position. I know that, you know, uh, Neil knows this, but I think when I, when I came on board at Glen Airy, I was just advising, and I wasn't even on the team. And then I came on board, and then the day I came on board, the executive director left to go to another position. And so the organization, the parent organization, spent a year in an executive search all over the country to find somebody to be the executive director. And I thought, gosh, you know, we can't wait that long for a leader. And I didn't have a position, but we could build a team. And we began this turnaround a year before I was even appointed to be the executive director. And the way that worked out was like, we couldn't find anybody. Would you take the role? <laughs> it, was like, it was a real uplifting promotion, you know? <laughs> but, you know, but I mean, one, one, of my, one of my mentors there was an old guy that had worked there, Len Froisland. Remember Len Froisland? And Dan, he said, Dan, he said, it may not be your responsibility, but it is your opportunity. And I think that we'll find ourselves in situations like that all the time, is that if we're looking with this, this eye of serving, you know, and the desire to help create value and help others develop, then I think that, you know, things will happen that may not be our responsibility, but it can be an opportunity. So be a servant leader. Again, it's interesting, you know, the, the corporate world talks a lot about servant leadership. It's like they don't even understand where it came from. <laughs> you know? uh, I think last week I was at, uh, in Dallas talking with the pres president of a company said, I just got to get some time with you. So he flew out from uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and we just met at the airport. And a brief meeting turned into a seven-hour one-on-one session with him. But the first four hours about his company, the last three hours were all about this. And my text in terms of talking to him about being a servant leader, as I said, well, I'd like to show you a letter. And I went to Philippians chapter 2. 
and we talked about Philippians chapter 2 for like an hour and a half, you know, to kind of say, this is, this is what it means. You're, this is not a leader who is acting as a servant. It's actually a servant who's been given the privilege of leading, and it's a whole different thing. So, you know, so I think just coming back, where can you take more initiative as a leader, and where do you need to develop more as a leader? Let me ask you, so think about this for a second. Are you in situations right now in your ministry, with the organizations that you're working in, anyplace else like this, where there is opportunity to be of influence and to step forward and to be a servant leader and help the cause of others that you haven't stepped into? You know, I'll leave it as a rhetorical question, but I think that, you know, as you begin the habit of, of stepping forward like this, of owning the opportunity to create value for others, create opportunity for others, develop others while you're developing professionally, I, I think that what happens is that you'll go a long ways. Um, I don't have a whiteboard here, but um, initially, um, and, I, and I saw an owner of a company explain this, he said, it's interesting is that when we hire people initially, we, hire, we look at their technical skills. But if you graph their importance over time in an organization, you'll see that their technical skills diminish in terms of relative importance. And what begins to rise up is their ability to manage, you know, projects, resources, things like that. And then ultimately, he said, the thing that, you, that you're, you're really valuing is their, is their ability to influence people. That's the leadership piece. So right now, most of your, your skills on the technical side but fortunately for you all, because of your involvement in the ministry, is that you're really getting a head start on the development on the people side. And so continue to do that. There's not anything that I do in corporate, with corporate leaders that I didn't cut my teeth on discipling people one-on-one, -on -one, leading small group Bible studies, you know, organizing conferences and retreats, you know, um, helping people get along, whatever it is, you know, and, 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 and it's been extrapolated out, you know. So those are the seven. Broaden your awareness and view of the world. You know, think about me incorporated. And again, you understand it. I'm just kind of talking in kind of branding terms here. Learn the big picture. Never stop learning. Build your network. Develop others. Be leaderful. So let me just uh, pause here. Um, we've, got a, we've got a couple minutes. Just real quick. You know, far be it for me to stand between a herd of hungry college students at dinner. <laughs> I value my life too much on that one. Um, I, I only know because I've seen my son eat. So, <laughs> uh, Questions. Was this helpful? I know this is kind of a tough time of day and everything, but what, what, what helped you? What other questions might you have? Um, you know, just be as specific as you want about... Right, right. Um, how did you first get started in that habit? And uh, what are the different sort of, what's like two biggest contrasting things that you've done? Okay, great question. Uh, how I got started was I, I, I kind of stumbled into it because I'm just naturally curious. Somebody was asking me the other day when I was doing this work with uh, the leaders, they said, well, you know, didn't there come, come a point where you kind of know it and you don't have to? And I just said, I'm just... I said, I, I am so hungry for learning right now, I can't learn fast enough. 
And I think that's important in today's world. You've got to kind of be learning because it's changing so much. But I think that's just really cool. So I kind of saw that in my 20s. And so as part of it was natural curiosity. Initially, I think that I, I, I most, a lot more of my thinking and study was uh, probably theological, ministry-oriented, communication, you know, that sort of thing. Then, then as I went into, uh, came back into the business world, then I began to say, gosh, there's, it's really changing. And, and that in terms of whether it was um, organizational design or systems thinking or strategy or leadership or any of those things, what I just thought, if I want to be a holistic leader, then what I did was I mapped out areas that I felt like leaders needed to be competent in terms of their thinking and kind of had a model on that. So, I mean, you could think about the contrast being, you know, spending years thinking about how Jesus trained the 12 to the cutting edge of innovation and disruption in technology, <laughs> you know. Um, but I think that's, that's, that's pretty, that's, that's a lot of fun for me, you know. And I think, so what I, just, what I did is I, I like to read. I think everybody's got a diff, different way to learn, obviously. Um, but I do read a lot, um, not a lot, you know, these guys back here probably read more, but I think I, you know, I, I try to keep pace for about 100, 120 books a year um, that I'm reading along with kind of the, the other news intake, you know. Uh, I had a friend that probably read over 300 books a year and just learning. But I, my, 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 I have a conviction that leaders are readers. Um, it's not always reversed, but I think guys that I know, because here's, here's, here's why learning is important. Proverbs says, as a man thinketh, so he is. I tell leaders all the time, the most th important thing about your organization is what you're thinking, not what you're doing. Because the quality of your thoughts and the way you perceive things is impacting all of these people out here. You know? And you're making decisions that are affecting all of these people out here. And how do you do that if you're not thinking? And, and so I think for us, we've got to constantly be improving the way we think. So, by the way, the first book I, I, I recommended to these readers was an old classic by Mortimer Adler on how to read a book. <laughs> and I did an hour on just how to read a book. A strategy, a strategy for reading. So, but excellent question. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Uh, two that I'm reading right now, um, one is called Difficult Conversations. And the idea there is um, that a lot, oftentimes, you know, we, in, in, in organizations, we have to have these conversations that are really tough when there's a lot, of, lot at stake. And most of the time, those conversations don't go well. And I'm actually... Um, I actually suggested that book, and, and, and I'm rereading it, and, and then concurrently thinking about what the scripture said in Proverbs and other places about the tongue, because I'm going to be doing a workshop for a group of women executives in late April on this whole idea of coaching them, especially in a male-dominated business world, about how to have difficult conversations. The other one is a book I'm reading right now called Tilt, which is talking about the fundamental shift between... Um, where 
I guess the, the weight of power is in the economy today and how it's at the consumer's level, and most businesses don't, under, don't get to that. And then a third one is that I'm reading a biography on uh, George Washington. So, <laughs> so I, and in terms of what I'm learning next, what I'm doing is that I'm coming back around right now. And because it's, it's, the field is changing so much and it's so dynamic, and it's, so I'm, I'm really kind of digging back into the whole area of innovation. So, <laughs> good question. Thanks. Other thoughts? I had a question. Yeah. You know, it's really been variable because my, 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 my life and career has been really variable. And it's a, it's a constant battle, you know. Um, so for me, I think that I, I do try to carve out kind of some white space time every day. It doesn't always work out because uh, I travel probably 40 weeks a year. So on the other hand, in, in traveling a lot, I do read while I'm traveling. Um, I do try to set aside uh, a few days a month, as well as some extended periods, like a week or so. But for me, it's all about the rhythm. I don't have the, I don't, my, the demands on my time, a lot of it's externally imposed, so I've got to try to figure out how to build these disciplines in there. I, I think I've always got like three or four or five books working. And, and you know, um, so between you know, and, and, and a lot of those I download digitally now, so it, it does faster, even though I prefer studying out of print. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I've got a, um, a set answer, because I think that um, my, my schedule is so volatile that I have to kind of just keep looking and say, got to keep after it here. Yeah. So the objectives help, and accountability helps on that. Most people, I think, uh, in executive levels, that's it's like, when I tell them they need to do this, it's kind of like, I don't have any time, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm constantly on, you know? I, I don't have any time where I'm disconnected because of digital communication, you know? Even when I'm home, I'm not home, you know? Um, so I think those are habits that we have to work at. But the fact that I was thinking this morning when you guys are out there having quiet time, the fact that you're developing habits where you're learning to kind of prioritize your life and you're starting your day with the Lord, that's not, that's not the same. What you're doing in a quiet time is priority in my mind. And I think along with the learning that I'm talking about, you have to kind of stay with it in terms of your personal development. And if the single probably most important discipline you'll develop is just this ability to meet with God every day. But I think beyond that, to carve out some time to, whether it's early morning or late at night or certain times of the week or day, you need to develop a rhythm, and your own profession and work will kind of dictate some of that. Then you got to kind of find it. Yes? Um, you said the thing about three years you take and try to master, uh, get a level, level of mastery. Uh, for people our age, what are like three examples of something you would think would be a good topic for us to try to do that with? Well, I, you know, I would say probably for you all, the next 10 years, a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of your thinking is going to go into kind of continuing to get mastery of your basic profession. I, I think your, your 20s through your early 30s, you're focused a lot on just kind of figuring out how to work, how to make it work, <laughs> you know. But 
if you could if you could do something alongside of that, you know, that to kind of augment that, but maybe not be the three-year thing, I would say developing your skills in leadership, communication, building teams, those sorts of things. Uh, also, just learn, you know, learning to become a more creative, innovative person. Right now, you know, you're learning what you're kind of forced to learn, and you need to learn to master. But I think beyond that, then if you can kind of begin to think, how do I think in a way that's kind of plus those things to bring some fresh perspective? Um, so I, I would say that if you're doing something like that, I would probably say also study something that's just probably totally unrelated to your field. Something that just kind of takes you and puts you in a different perspective. So I was asking one executive the other day, what are you doing? And all these guys were kind of, they weren't too good in this one lady, a vice, young vice president, she says, I'm learning how to raise honeybees. <laughs> Everybody kind of looked. But I know Colleen, and she's unbelievably creative and gifted leader. And I thought, good for you. That's going to probably go a lot further than what those guys are studying. But <laughs> because I think it, it recharges you too, right? Sometimes you're just kind of grinding away, and something like that re re replenishes you some. One more question, and we'll go. You want to go? No. <laughs> Um, it was probably, you know, I mean, you always look back and think, well, you know, God, you know, God was there. But I think the biggest career shift for me was when I probably left Glen Erie and stepped out into the leadership advisory world because I hadn't been in that arena in a decade and nobody knew me. And um, a guy called me up and said, would you be willing to do this? And, um, and it was really interesting. From the first moment, I knew that this was something unlike anything that I'd done. And yet, at the same time, it was a culmination of everything that I'd done. And that um, uh, everything, especially not only the business experience, but more importantly, the ministry experience, that God had all of a sudden just kind of positioned me at a level of our corporate world where they're just not, they're not a lot of Christian voices. And that was a surprise. And um, now, you know, a decade and a half later, it's, it's kind of like where we need to be. It's interesting, I didn't share this uh, last night, but the fire was very interesting because I shared pretty clearly what God was doing in our lives through that to all of these presidents of all these companies. And I would say that my interaction with every single one of them is gone to a depth that I couldn't have imagined. And that there's just this kind of like absolute trust on the part of these guys that are very guarded with their trust to be able to just talk with me. And so when I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking, well, it's kind of like Daniel. Daniel didn't plan that career change, you know, <laughs> to end up in Nebuchadnezzar's court and there's no school or path that you take. But he ended up there in a place where that just all of a sudden you have leadership that just saying, talk to us, you know? And so I think as you prepare, you prepare, you prepare, you keep walking with God, you keep thinking about these things, about how to add value, it, you'll, you'll just be astonished at where God puts you. And I think that's, that's the cool thing. You can't even imagine. I, I, I haven't, so. Okay? Dinner. Thanks a lot.